Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I interview Greg Campbell, the director of Hondros, about war photographer Chris Hondros, who was killed in Libya alongside Tim Hetherington in 2011. Chris had spent well over a decade in conflict zones and took iconic photos in Liberia, Iraq, and Egypt. In the film, we hear Chris explain his motives. I, I'm not one of these people that got into war photography for the rush. I, I, I'm not into adventure sports or anything like that either. I mean, I believe in photography. I believe in the role that journalists and photographers specifically play in our whole system of international conflict and how we resolve differences. We have a role to play, and I, I would like to be involved in that. Greg first met Chris in high school, and they started their journalism careers together. Greg is a writer. Chris is a photographer. They got an early taste of conflict reporting in Kosovo. Greg wrote books, including Blood Diamonds, that became a Hollywood movie. But their paths diverged. Greg settled in Colorado, started a family, and pulled back from conflict reporting while Chris went deeper into it, based out of New York. Chris had a gift for friendship that transcended distance. In the film, photographer Tyler Hicks gives this description. One of the things that I didn't really understand about Chris until much later in our friendship was that like the, the scope of friends that he had, whether they're translators, drivers, friends he met along the way, you know, it doesn't matter who they were. He actually put an incredible amount of work and energy into staying connected to those people. And he really had this, this global presence about him. This story is personal to me because Chris was a good friend of mine. I got to know him in 2004 after he returned from Liberia. We went through big life experiences together. He took the best photo at my wedding. I gave him advice on buying an engagement ring. So when I heard that Greg was going to make his debut film about Chris, I gave him some advice. I'd forgotten about that, but he brings it up in our interview. Now, after five years in the making, Andros is out in the world. I interviewed Greg last week in New York and asked him how he began the project. It was pretty pretty immediate when Chris was killed. Um, it was born, you know, in a little bit in a, from a selfish place because his death came very very suddenly and unexpectedly, which is kind of a weird thing to say about somebody who did a dangerous job like he did. You know, to think that. Um, he was going to come home unscathed from every one of his assignments is retrospectively a little bit naive. So when the news hit, I had an immediate compulsion to want to honor his life and his legacy. In a lot of ways, I wanted to do it for myself because I had a lot of questions that I had left unasked of him about his experiences and his career and the people he met. And the film was our opportunity to uh, be able to go answer some of those questions, at least as as well as we could. And my background, as you know, is as a writer. So one of my first thoughts was maybe to do a biography or write a book about Chris. And I'd written several articles about him and his life. But um, being a visual artist, it just made the most sense to do a film because Chris's body of work is astonishing. And to see it on a, a theater screen is really the only way to experience it. In the film... 
Greg talks with many colleagues of Chris and also uses interviews that others conducted with Chris. Is it hard to have um, relationships in what you do? It's obviously difficult. I mean, we travel mostly because we travel a lot. You know, when I go to Iraq, I go for about six weeks usually, and I'm, I've gone at least every two or three times a year since the war began. On the other hand, I don't think it's impossible. I mean, there are a lot of people with consuming jobs, and you know, to me, holding a relationship is a personal decision and has a lot of factors, and this is only just one of them, really. That interview turned out to be extremely valuable. The filmmaker Diane Paragas here in New York had shot it for a pilot that I think she was pitching regarding conflict photographers. And uh, when we became aware of it, we'd only seen a few uh, clips online that were posted shortly after Chris was killed. And when we contacted her and actually obtained the entire interview, it was it was quite a wealth of content. And it's so gratifying to hear him saying... Uh, in response to questions that I, I probably would have asked if he had been sitting in, in that chair and I had been conducting the interview. And it's, um, it was really a valuable find. Now, there are other films that have been made about uh, war photographers, both living war photographers and deceased war photographers, film about Tim Hetherington, film about Jim Foley. Um, I, I wonder how much you were thinking about those films, if you felt like you had to position this film alongside them? Actually, no. I tried really hard not to watch some of the other films in this in this unfortunate genre that has kind of developed. And mainly because I, I wanted to make our own decisions based on the story we wanted to tell about Chris's life. And part of it, obviously, is biographical. We wanted to be able to trace who he was, how he got into the career that he got into. But it was really important to me that we go maybe a step or two beyond those basic foundational points of the film. Because as Chris uh, demonstrated throughout his work and his career, he was very, very uh, interested in how the events that he was covering impacted the civilian populations of these areas. And, you know, I kind of always felt Chris's gaze on me as we were making decisions about what to do and who to highlight in the film. And what steps to kind of go out of the biographical boundaries that you might expect from a documentary. And I think one of our overriding goals was to sort of honor the, the type of care that Chris put into his work um, with, with the film and to the degree that we could. So, um, so that was sort of like our, those were my marching orders that I'd given myself. And I, I didn't want to get distracted by thinking about competing films or other films that had come before ours or how we were going to sort of stack up. So I, I intentionally made made uh, the decision not to. I've, of course, seen all those films, but not at the time we were actually cutting it. The big moment of Chris Sandros's career is uh, his experiences in Liberia. It's where he took one of his most remembered photographs, and you give it a lot of attention, uh, rightly so, in the film. First, can you just kind of set up, you know, what Liberia meant to Chris Andros? Sure. You know, Chris had been Chris had been uh, a photographer for quite some time when the war in Liberia broke out in 2003. But he hadn't quite gotten an image that catapulted him into sort of the upper strata of people in that profession. And the war in Liberia was was very, very violent. It was very brutal. And it was getting closer 
and closer to the city capital, which is where Chris and several other photographers were based. Uh, these were rebel soldiers that were undisciplined, child soldiers who were high on drugs, indiscriminately shooting into uh, populated centers. And Chris, of course, ran the very same risks as the civilians that he was covering. And he and I were in close contact that entire time. I would call him on an almost daily basis. We were certainly emailing back and forth. And there came a time when he had the opportunity to evacuate if he wanted to. The U.S. Marines offered anybody who wanted to, to leave a chance to get on a helicopter at the U.S. Embassy and fly to a neighboring country. And we discussed it, and he said that he wanted to stay because he felt it was unfair to leave the civilian population who couldn't leave without um, a witness to see what they were going through to convey to the rest of the world what was happening. And he also said that he, you know, he felt like this is the place where he could really make a difference because it seemed that with the photographs that were getting out and published around the world, specifically in the United States, they were having an effect. There were, they were causing a conversation to occur at the policy level, which is what Chris got into photojournalism to do. So he felt that to retreat then at that moment, where there was kind of a, a crux moment for him, would have been to come up short for the goal that he'd set for himself. We were with the government soldiers just before they were about to charge the bridge, and I thought it would be way too dangerous to do. It was just exposed. There was no where to hide, nowhere to duck. The bullets were flying everywhere. But something clicked in me at that moment when I was thinking about it, and just as they were about to charge. You know, I kind of realized at that moment that my whole career as a photographer, in a way, had been leading up to a moment like that. But he went out with the soldiers who were storming the bridge and managed to make this graceful, beautiful, and yet violent and paradoxical photograph of this commander who is jumping for joy after having fired a rocket-propelled grenade at the enemy and presumably hitting a direct strike and perhaps killing some people at that very moment. And he's got a, a very complicated look on his face. It looks like he just scored a touchdown. But then you see the surroundings and where he is and what he may have just done, and it creates just a real range of emotions in the pers in the people who see it. And so that was the image that really put the name Chris Hondros on the map. And I mean, that story has an afterlife in that the soldier that he captured, whose name is Joseph Duo, Chris later went and found that soldier, helped support him uh, to go to school. It's, it's a, uh, a pretty positive story. There's another story of probably the, the, the other major photograph that people think of uh, in Chris Andros's work shot in Talafar, Iraq, of a little girl whose uh, parents have just been killed. They were driving a car up to a checkpoint. American soldiers fired a couple warning shots. The car didn't stop. They shot into the car and turned out to be full of a, a family of, of civilians, uh, including several kids who were uh, injured. The parents were killed. You track down that story uh, also in the film, and uh, and it's it's a lot more complicated than the than the Joseph Duo uh, story. Um, can you talk about your, your desire to tell that story? Yeah, absolutely. I think, as you just said, it was more complicated. And one of the things we wanted to be clear about in the film is that Chris operated in an environment where the decisions that were made had consequences that couldn't be foreseen very often. And the difference between right and wrong decisions uh, couldn't be discerned often in the, in the instant. 
And in this particular situation, those photographs went around the world instantaneously. And as one of the people in the film says, the, the impact was immediate. People protested outside of George Bush's second inauguration using those photographs on placards and pickets um, because they illustrated the human toll of the U.S. intervention in Iraq in a way that I don't think any other photograph up to that point had done. He'd captured something that I think people felt, you know, felt they knew was happening in, in Iraq but had never been photographed yeah, in, in, su- yeah. in such a powerful way. Correct. Yeah, there was, a, there was a lot of reports about th- incidents like this happening, but it's very different to get photographic proof uh, of something that occurred and to see the direct aftermath and just to imagine what the what anguish this little girl must have been going through. And she's literally covered in the blood of her parents who were just shot to death in front of her. So at the time, uh, that, that photograph was taken in what year? 2005. 2005. And she was five years old. Yeah. Um, and uh, you, her name is Samar Hassan. Yes. Uh, you went back to try to find her nine years later uh, in 2014. Um, can you describe, you know, w- uh, what it was like to be, you know, traveling to, to, to meet her at that time? You know, what, the reason we wanted to, to, to speak with her and give her the opportunity to discuss that event if she wanted it was because it had, it, it become so iconic of, uh, the, the the messy situation in Iraq and and U, the U.S. involvement there. And Chris had obviously spoken about it a lot. The image was used over and over and over in many, many different contexts. We spoke to the soldier, one of the soldiers who was involved in, in the event. So it had been discussed from every angle except hers. And journalistically, I wanted to, I knew she was alive and had the opportunity to discuss it if she wanted to take it. So we thought there was maybe a, you know, even chance that she would tell us that she would wasn't interested. And it's not like you were having an email uh, exchange with her in, in the lead up to going to, to find her. In fact, it was very difficult to find her because the month before we arrived in Iraq was when ISIS invaded and came onto the world stage in its grand fashion and captured the city of Mosul, which is where she had lived. And for a time, we lost touch with her family. We had a contact number for a remote uncle who spoke a, a, a dialect of, of Arabic that's not very common. So we had to route our phone calls through several countries on Skype in order to even have a conversation with him. So we figured it was just best to show up in person and we knew roughly what city he was in and we would contact him when we arrived. But um, when we arrived, he'd obviously become displaced by ISIS. And so he and his family were were in full evacuation. They were internally displaced within Iraq. So, so we took us a solid three weeks in Iraq to get that interview. And and it was, you know, it, it was an amazing encounter because that little girl was burned into my, my mind and my consciousness just as much as I'm sure that it is for other people who've seen the photograph. And to see her living and breathing, you know, uh, sitting across from me was, was a powerful thing. And one of the things that, uh, sort of another aspect of why I felt the interview was important is because Chris Hondros and I had interviewed one of the soldiers a few years before Chris was killed, and that soldier was compelled to apologize. He wanted he wanted to atone for his role in that shooting, and Chris was killed before he could deliver that 
that message. Um, whether he was, would have delivered it or not is obviously we'll never know. But but I felt an obligation to share with Samar that Bradley Hammond, the soldier that we interviewed, was was apologetic and wanted to say he was sorry for what what happened and his role in it. And you know her response um, was probably, in my view, I think it's the most important part of the film because it is totally illustrative of the things that Chris covered and the the, the reality that there isn't always a happy ending to to the decisions that are are made on, in the field in a split second and um, that he witnessed on a regular basis. Unlike Joseph Duo in Liberia, who seems very proud of his photograph, uh, I don't think she has any um, real feeling for being in this iconic photograph. All, all she really experienced as was a catastrophic yeah. death of her parents. Yeah, I agree with that. We And we didn't show her any, any of the photographs. We didn't ask for her reaction in the moment to those. There, there was no no need to do that. She lived through the event and it shaped who she is today and clearly is having its impact on her still. So we obviously didn't want to show her the photographs needlessly. Um, but you're right, Joseph Joseph is proud of that photograph because in, it depicts him uh, defending his city and and being extraordinarily brave, you know, in, in, in his mind, that's what he's taking from that photograph. So he's very thankful for it. I want to ask you about Libya in 2011, uh, which is where Chris died. You had gone to Libya to uh, report uh, with Chris, something you say in the film he had invited you to do many times before in Iraq and Afghanistan. You'd always said no, uh, but you went uh, this time. And I wonder if you can you know, take us back to 2011 and the mindset that you and Chris perhaps shared that you know, made you feel this was an important story worth telling, worth going to considerable risk to tell. Sure. And uh, if, if you don't mind, it has its genesis several years before when we began our careers as foreign reporters. And I think we both sort of began our, on our paths at the same time, sort of at the same pace, where we were very interested in covering conflict. We were interested in seeing and helping shape history as uh, it's a cliche to say that you're writing the first draft of history, but it's also true. And it's also, that's very appealing. It was to both of us. And it didn't take me long to figure out that I didn't have the threshold for covering conflict as, as others might, as Chris certainly did. And after a few years and a few conflicts, I decided to focus my reporting on less dangerous situations, still did some foreign reporting, but my, mainly my work was domestic. Chris continued on, obviously. I mean, maybe it's not unrelated that you started a family when you were... Yeah, that had that definitely had... Um, uh, that was a big consideration, obviously. And Chris, Chris did not have a family. Um, obviously, he had this familial family, but he wasn't connected. He wasn't married or had children. Uh, and I did. So that, that did play a very big role in my decision to dial it back. But even if it hadn't, I still think that knowing myself, I know where my limitations... I discovered where my limitations were, I should say. And Chris sort of never took no for an answer. He didn't... Uh, he didn't accept that, and it actually led to conflict between us often when he would cajole me into coming to Iraq or, or Afghanistan or wherever it may may have been, and 
I remember heatedly saying, you're not getting the message here. I don't want to do this any longer. But, you know, Chris was Chris, and he continued all the way up until Libya. And it's a, I don't have an answer as to why I said yes. I instinctively did, though. And it was clearly the most dangerous place that he'd ever invited me to go. I think two of our close friends were still captured by the Gaddafi forces when he said, let's go, let's go right into the thick of it and go cover this stuff. And I've always wondered, you know, why I just said yes with no hesitation, without consulting my wife, without having an assignment right off the bat. Um, but I did. And it's uh, the, the best conclusion I can come to is that you know, the world was telling us something that, you know, this was this was going to be his last assignment and I needed to be there for it. And I'm so happy that I was because I got a chance to see what a mature photographer and a mature operator he became in these environments. Um, in addition to the high degree of respect that he was given by his colleagues that we met on every street corner, photographers, reporters, videographers from around the world. Uh, counted him as their their peer and their equal, and in many cases, the, the person that they looked up to and strove to be. And as somebody who's so close to him from, from a friendship perspective, it just made me extraordinarily proud that he had done what he wanted to do with his life. There's some video taken of him in the field. One piece that I uh, really appreciate, because you're describing uh, in voiceover the way he's kind of constantly scanning a scene, um, you know, both as a photographer um, and out of risk assessment. Uh, and and in this piece of video, you really see him doing that. It's like a great illustration of, uh, of a photographer at work, not the work that we normally think of, of what you see through the lens, but the kind of behind the scenes work that what it takes to get uh, those shots. Um, so were you filming uh, some of that video while while you were in Libya? Yeah, that was uh, that was my footage that I shot. Um, when we were together, I took a, a camera with me. It was just an off-the-shelf uh, consumer brand DSLR. And <clears throat> it was it was my way of keeping my wits about me because we were in obvious combat environments, very kinetic, um, a lot of action, a lot of turmoil. And as a writer, I was writing for USA Today. I'd picked up a quick assignment with those guys, and I didn't necessarily need to be right there on the in the thick of it, but I was there with Chris, and I wanted to stay by his side, and I occupied my time by turning on the video camera and just recording what he was doing. You know, there was very, even when there was very little action, which actually turned out to be some of the richer moments of that footage where we're standing around talking about what might come down the road. Um, so I was really lucky too to have all that all that footage, and it's one of those um, things that you love and hate because not being a filmmaker at the time and really doing this just to sort of occupy myself and having no plan for the footage that I was capturing, I didn't capture much. I only had one memory card with me, and I think it would fill up after two hours worth of shooting every day. I had to unload it. Eventually, my hard drive filled up and didn't have backup. I mean, I'm sure people are listening to this totally cringing at <laughs> amateur hour uh, well, that it was out there. I'm but grateful what you did get. <laughs> Very grateful. There's one moment in that situation where Chris is like analyzing 
what's going on. Essentially, we're standing out here, if you look at it clearly, with three or four armored armed trucks. You know, we're standing out here with three or four trucks that actually have ammunition. So, versus the Libyan army, is fully mortarized, mechanized, and armed down the street with who knows how much. That's such a Chris moment. I mean, whether he's analyzing the room or analyzing history. I mean, I've I heard him, you know, give an analysis of you know the war in Iraq in exactly the kind of same like let's break this down uh, uh, kind of method. So I was grateful to to have that preserved. The day that uh, Chris and Tim Hetherington were killed and other photographers uh, were injured um, is. April 20th, 2011, one that's been kind of, you know, picked apart and uh, deciphered by, you know, by different people who have studied this uh, story, both from the Tim Hetherington side and Chris Andros' side. Ultimately, as the photographer Tyler Hicks says in the film, we'll never know, uh, you know, what brought them to Tripoli Street um, uh, that day uh, where they died. But it is a kind of irresistible mystery uh, to to try to decode, and and I wonder how you approached that mystery. If you know how important it was for you to you know break down the TikTok of it. Um, if it was important at first, and I I was trying to suss it out and to see just how into the weeds forensic we wanted to get about decisions. And I, I came to a point really quickly where it, I just decided it didn't matter. I think ultimately the answer is because the next great photo might have been there that afternoon. I think that was his calculus at some point or other. If he'd been killed on the bridge in Liberia, I think people would be saying, why did he go out to the middle of the bridge? If he'd been killed in by an errant bullet uh, in Talafar, people would be saying, why did he go out on that patrol when he could have stayed home. He'd already been taking photographs that day. The truth is his job was a photojournalist and he covered conflict. And that put him into the crosshairs of some very dangerous situations. And it's remarkable to think back on his career and realize that with some exceptions, he walked away physically unscathed. Uh, There were times when he might have taken a smack or two or been pawed by a mob or something. But Overall, he he walked through every major conflict of the last decade without really a a scratch. And that's a marvelous accomplishment. And in this particular instance, he walked into a situation that was, in retrospect and and from an armchair quarterback point of view, uh, probably more dangerous than it was earlier that day because everybody had time to calm down from the tumult of actual combat as it was happening and rest up and peer through binoculars and lay in wait for the appearance of the enemy to come back into that intersection, which had been contested for weeks and was probably dialed in very specifically as it seems to have been when they pulled the trigger on that one mortar tube and they only sent one round into into the crowd. And it was that's all it took. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that day well. And uh, the reporting that unfolded over the next couple of days and one thing that stays with me is that the very name of the town, Misrata, was so obscured to the Western press that 
there were multiple spellings of it, uh, you know, between yeah. New York Times, Washington Post, uh, um, and uh, and I think for you know anyone who cared about Chris and Tim, you can't help you know wonder, uh, ask yourself rightly or wrongly, like you know, is Ms. Rada is telling the story of Ms. Rada um, worth dying over? Um, and I'm sure you must have asked yourself versions of that question. I wonder how you come through it. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, the whole is it worth dying over question is – it's a tough one because you can't objectively look at at a photograph and or, or a book or a work of art and and look at it and say this this was worth someone's life. Um, but – I, I think Chris would counter that if he chose a different path or a different life, you could ask the same thing about the bus that you walked in front of as you're walking across the street to get a cup of coffee in the morning and never saw it coming. Um, I think you might be lying there in your last moments under the bus, quickly evaluating your life and saying, I didn't take any risks. I didn't, I didn't put myself on the line for others, which is what Chris was doing in Misrata. There were, there were countless civilians living in that city under siege by their own government forces and being indiscriminately bombarded and caught in the crossfire. We wouldn't know about Misrata if it weren't for people like Chris Andros and all of his colleagues who were out there bringing their plight and their suffering into the world consciousness. And I think if Chris had an opportunity to have a last second thought there, I think he could easily scan back through his life and, and be pretty satisfied with, with the accomplishments that he had. Mm-hmm. You, you spent five years uh, making this film. Um, and I had a chance to see a, a couple earlier versions of it, so I know that uh, some of the, the things that you were grappling with to uh, to find the story. Can you talk about like you know what the biggest challenges were for you to 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 land the the final strong film that you did? Yeah, you summed it up really well. As a matter of fact, um, I think it was not long after you and I first met, and you told me not to fuck it up, and that was my <laughs> <laughs> that was my over. Trust me, I came back to that piece of advice over and over and over again. Um, you know, because this was my first film. I was also well aware that it was my only opportunity to get it right. You don't get a second shot at something as important as a person's legacy, and regardless of whether this person was my friend or not. And in this case, he just happened to be my best friend, and he was beloved around the world. So there was... Which I got to think gives you certain advantages, but certain disadvantages. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Disadvantages being an enormous amount of pressure that I also put on myself. And and then forgiving myself and then allowing that pressure to dissipate because it's just the truth that you come to is that you're never going to be able to summarize someone's life adequately in 90 minutes. And that's true of anyone walking the earth today. And I think that once we, once we decided on the – it's so funny. Every journey is a, is a long collection of tiny steps. And we had to take a little bit of retreat here and there. We went – is that every type, every path you take is going to take you to a different endpoint, and I think that it took us a little bit of time, probably a little overcautious at the beginning, and a lot of backing off, a lot of contemplation, and you know, honestly, I want to give a shout out to Jenny Golden, my co-writer and our finishing editor here in New York, who um, 
really came in and saw the heart of the film and kind of read the tea leaves about where we I wanted it to go ultimately. And she was the one that found the poetry in our footage and really just, you know, had has created the beating heart that it that I believe it came to. I want to thank Greg Campbell for speaking with me. His film Hondros is now available on iTunes and other platforms. This interview was recorded at the School of Visual Arts in the MFA Social Documentary Program. Thanks to our team, series producer Sarah Modo, sound mixer Tom Micah, and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.